Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode uh, 44, I think. That's all right. Um, wanted to say thanks, first off, to Robert Hornack for appearing on the Black Swan episode uh, last time. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed having him on the show, and he said a lot of uh, insightful things, and a lot of nice things to me, and that's that's a lot of fun. Uh, I also wanted to, yeah, okay, so this was kind of dumb of me. Uh, I posted the last minisode right after posting the Black Swan episode, which means a lot of people, if you are subscribed to it, probably saw the minisode and not the Black Swan episode. The Black Swan episode is more important than the minisode, uh, and significantly longer, so if you saw that there's, like, minisode 2, and you're like, I don't, and in that I make reference to the Black Swan episode, if you thought i don't know what he's talking about just go back and uh and download that or just go ahead and listen to that because i did notice that there are significantly fewer downloads for the black swan episode than the than the uh mtol minisode uh, number two so you can find that on itunes you can also find it on the website so uh i do i'm rather proud of that episode so uh please go and and take a look at that so i uh, wanted to get a couple of announcements out of the way First off is uh, I was recently on the Slash Filmcast talking about Kevin Smith's film uh, Red State, and you can find that on iTunes and on their website. I also put a link on the More Than One Lesson website that you can follow. And a reminder, um, I said this last time, but I also I want to repeat it because I want his show to get uh, more listeners. Uh, comedian Mike Siegel has a podcast called Travel Tales that I appeared on a few weeks ago. And uh, it's a good it's a good show, and he's a he's a really good guy, and it's just a good show in general. It's people talking about uh, their various travel experiences. Um, I don't have a lot of travel experiences. I really don't know why I was on the show. Um, that's not actually true. I've gone on a couple mission trips, and so we sort of talk about that. But uh, you can hear various, mostly comedians, because that's what he is. What he is. Um, uh, you can hear them talking about their road stories. And uh, an episode that I specifically recommend is uh, comedian Graham Elwood talking about going over to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and performing for the troops. Uh, and I think uh, comedian Jackie Cation also has similar stories. So uh, really good uh, episodes of a really good show. And, of course, go and listen to mine because I'm incredibly charming. So, so yeah, Slash Filmcast, Travel Tales. Uh, for those that did listen to the mini-sode, uh, I, uh, I got a lot of feedback as a result of that, people saying that they were uh, happy for me, that I was uh, doing a little better these days, and so I do appreciate that. Uh, and I did make an announcement during that, uh, that mini-sode, and nobody has given me any feedback on that, so let's hope everyone's happy about it, uh, because, uh, because uh, it's coming to fruition now. Um, <laughs> that sounds a little bit more ominous than I meant for it to. So... Um, so yeah, anybody who has listened to the show for an extended period of time knows that the the basic idea was me hosting this by myself, and I would occasionally have guests on, and and you know uh, I was it got to be more frequently that I would have guests on, but uh, uh, lately I started feeling as the well not lately it's been the last five months or so uh, I started feeling like maybe I should have a I guess the word is co-host, uh, the, but in actuality. The word that is much more insulting, but it's actually, I'll use the word co-host, but really sidekick is what I'm looking for here. Uh, but that there, you know, you get images of of Robin, specifically from Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin. 
and um, and that's that's no fun. But uh, but I started to think, you know, I I like dialogue more than monologue, uh, especially when it's me. So I thought I would bring somebody else on here. Um, and as I said in the minisode, we don't totally know exactly what it's going to mean uh, as far as involvement and that sort of thing. So. Uh, so I do have a co-host now, and that is the word that will be used from now on. Um, anybody who listens to this, you know what it really is, but the word is, is co-host and he's sitting next to me here laughing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so he's been on the show a couple of times, uh, episode 17 and episode, uh, I don't know, something in the thirties, late thirties, uh, in which he talked about Shutter Island. Uh, it's, uh, Josh Long. Josh. How's everybody doing? I was. I wanted to say a couple things earlier. Oh, not, okay. not real specific things, but you you said things, and I almost wanted to comment on it. But I was like, I can't let the cat out of the bag yet. You no. haven't said that I'm here yet, so I'm just gonna wait. Okay. What and did now, you want to say? I was gonna make a Batman joke. I think. Oh, okay. And I forgot it. Okay. It was. If good, it makes though. you feel any better, yeah. I could say Bucky from Captain America. He dies though. Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> so, make me feel better at all. Well, I'm just saying he dies heroically. Okay. I like to think I'm I'm the the didn't I say Walter Brennan before? Yes, I'm I Walter think so. Brennan. The, the, oh no, here we go. There's gold in them hills. That's doesn't he do that? That's not Walter Brennan. He's kind of like that's that. Walter Houston. <laughs> well, maybe in uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Maybe, could be winner of Best Supporting Actor in oh. whatever year that was. So um, okay, so that's Josh. Already we can tell this was a big mistake. <laughs> um, but uh, thanks, America. Yeah, come on, guys. I told you to cut him some slack. Why oh, are you, you know being what? such jerks? It's not just America, is it? This, this podcast is worldwide, if people want. So, yeah. thanks, Earth. Mm. Thanks, mostly English-speaking Earth. <laughs> um, but uh, why don't you get on board, Slavic countries? <laughs> we can get something out, something for the, uh, the non-English speakers out there, right? We can say a couple words in another language every now and then. I guess so. You speak some Spanish, right? I speak a little bit. Un poquito, if you will. Whoa. Watch out. Yeah, watch out. I've, I'm suddenly uncomfortable. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, already, isn't it a good idea for me to have a, a co-host that's my friend, and uh, we just jack around in, yeah, we're just in gonna, front we're, of a mic for a we're, while? We're, it's going to be a long time before we end up talking about a movie, actually. No question about it. I, have... I'd want a Christian version of, of Battleship Pretension, which, incidentally, nobody wants. <laughs> no one would ever want that. <laughs> not even you. Not Especially not me. Um Okay, uh, so of course we did we did spend um, like two and a half hours getting to know you in episode seventeen. Uh, not merely it wasn't just pure interview; it was also just us talking about being uh, film lovers growing up mm-hmm. uh, in a Christian environment and what that is about and what that's like. Um, but I do want to for those that uh, haven't heard that. I mean, it's it's available. You can always go back and listen if you want some some more in depth stuff uh, about Josh and myself. But uh, I did want to give people just a real quick chance to, to get to know you a little bit. Um, so you live here in Los Angeles? That's correct. Recently married? Recently married. I've been married for just over a month, so. Congratulations. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, to, uh, and you got married to a previous More Than One Lesson guest. That's true. Megan Witzke, episode 30. That's, that's correct. So, so uh, yeah, you can go and listen to that. We talk, uh, she and I talk about the, the film Agora. So now you can imagine her and him together, or if you're like me, you can't imagine that. And uh, <laughs> even when like, you see it all the time, if you're if you're some kind of audio wizard, you could take uh, the episodes that I'm on and the episode that she's on, j- 
just cut those together, and that's exactly what it sounds like in our house. Oh man, yeah, it's it's a lot like that. We don't have a house, <laughs> so and it's so you're saying it's not going to last because you're always talking about Shutter Island. She's always talking about Agora. I, we, we just can't we just can't connect somehow. Sometimes you'll talk about Memento and she'll talk about Inherit the Wind, but not a lot. <laughs> Every now and then, so and then occasionally you'll just talk a lot about yourself. <laughs> so, uh, so you live here in Los Angeles. You've been here for a few years now, right? Yes, um, uh, it's 2008. I moved here March of 2008. Okay. So it's. Uh, it will be it'll be four years in March. And when did you uh, uh, not when uh, where did you move here from? I moved here from North Carolina, which okay. is where Megan and I met coincidentally. And uh, I I grew up in North Carolina, went to call it North Carolina, put an S on the end there because I was going to start to say something else. But it sounded like I said there was more than one North Carolina. So just to just so there's no confusion. There's North and uh, Northwest and Northeast Carolinas, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, North Carolina. I studied. Uh, in Tennessee, I went to college at Bryan College in Dayton, Tennessee. Uh, studied communications with an emphasis in theater and film. Spent a semester in Los Angeles with the Los Angeles Film Studies Center, and uh, since then have been uh, alternatively sort of working in uh, in and around the film industry. Mm-hmm. And what are some of your uh, notable uh, achievements in in film? Not- I don't say that ironically. Notable with a star next to it. Um, yeah. Uh I I have one feature film called For the Title which um is is available on DVD and if you would like to see the trailer or any information about it it is at uh the website is at Macville Productions that's Mac with a C so macvilleproductions.com/forthetitle. You can also find the trailer on the video page of more than one lesson. Yes, yeah, which so. might be easier. <laughs> Probably yes. Um and then I've worked on a, a, a few web series. I'm currently developing a second one, um, and the first one is still available, I believe, at um, mylegalmix.com. It's called Firmly Legal, and there's three episodes of that, mm-hmm. um, at least two of which I'm proud of. <laughs> All right. Well, the two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> yeah, that's Meatloaf. <laughs> I, meatloaf is in all three. Oh man, that's um, really something. Well, he's only good in the first one. Mm-hmm. He's not in the first one, one out of three. He's is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's the other song that he never told you about. Thanks a lot, Meatloaf. <laughs> um, uh, so yes, that's kind of a that's a quick thing. And then I've I've been writing, and uh, I have a few short films that have been produced, and I've worked a lot as an assistant director as well. Okay. Uh, and then I think we mentioned this when uh, Jason Eakin was on the show. Uh, a I was going to say a few weeks ago, but let's be honest, two and a half months ago, but <laughs> two episodes ago. Mm. So it's sort of like weeks. Yeah. Um, but uh, Jason had written and directed a, uh, a short film called Reservations, yes. uh, which you can actually purchase not on the More Than One Lesson website, but on the Battleship Pretension website. Uh, and it stars Josh and myself. So if you'd like to watch us act together, <laughs> which is just like this, by the way. So why would anybody want that? It's yeah. But you can find that at uh, battleshippretension.com. You can find that in, uh, in the store. Uh, but I did want to talk very briefly about For the Title. Um, okay. It is a mockumentary, correct? Yes. Uh, in the style of, a, of, say, Christopher Guest. It's very Christopher Guest uh, heavy. Okay, well, I didn't want to make <laughs> it seem like it was just a ripoff no, or something. It's, it's an homage. Oh, okay. I'll say Nice. That. Thank you. I knew not to pronounce the H. Aren't I smart? Yeah. Oh man, I can tell you have a communications degree. So, um, uh, and what is it? Uh, what is it about? It's about 
the greatest sport in the world, ultimate frisbee. <sighs> I'm going to turn, you know what? My goal now is to turn every one of these episodes back to ultimate frisbee somehow. Well, you do that with every conversation, so I know. it stands well, to reason. You know, if you want to talk with someone for very long, you got to start talking about ultimate frisbee pretty soon. The conversation gets boring. Absolutely. And then you can talk about all the different injuries that you've sustained uh-huh. in this, fil- in this uh, film. Well, did you sustain any injuries in the film? Not in the making of the film, but uh, the days before shooting, uh, like three days or five days before shooting, I separated my shoulder playing Ultimate Frisbee. So if you watch the movie, you'll see some scenes where I'm holding my arm as if it were in a sling, Mm -hmm. and that's because I couldn't move it in any other way without hurting myself. I played Shylock that way. (laughs) Yeah, my, my director didn't find out about that until after the play was over. He thought it was just some sort of Bob Dolian kind of choice you were making. <laughs> no, it was just it was such like a hunched over old like uh, the the physicality was already there in the character that he really couldn't move very much mm-hmm. and it just it just kind of worked. I got lucky, I guess. Yeah. And then when they had to break down the set at the end, I was like, "Oh yeah, I, I separated my shoulder." So I can't, can't help uh, with the breakdown. Can't help. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. That's convenient. Um okay, so yeah, for the title is a is a mockumentary about Ultimate Frisbee. And it is uh, very amusing, and it, it won a couple awards at uh, some film festivals, correct? Yes, we won a People's Choice Award at uh, the Southern Fried, Fri- Southern Fried Flicks Film Festival, which unfortunately does not exist anymore, but it was a good little festival for a few years. And um, we, were, uh, we were featured at several others. I think that was our one uh, big win, but we, I think we were at five or six film festivals. Okay. Uh, and so... Uh, in the spirit of uh, all of us uh, getting to know Josh, I already know him more than I'd like to, <laughs> frankly. Well. Um, but uh, yeah, if if you would like a copy of for the title, a free copy of for the title, um, email me Tyler at more than one lesson dot com and say that you would like a copy of it, and uh, we'll be just be giving away one. And so I'll uh, I don't know I'll do some sort of drawing or something. I'll I'll go to the old uh, randomizer Ooh. online, which is a lot of fun. Uh, more the, fun than it should be, I'll say that. I hope the randomizer has like colored circles and like numbers beep around in them. Like, doo, 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 it doo, seems doo, like 12. it would. It's not nearly as fun as it should be, <laughs> but uh, but I still enjoy it. There are th- times I just go in and, and put in a bunch of numbers and randomize just for fun. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, email me Tyler at more than one lesson dot com uh, and say that you would like a copy yeah, that you would like to enter the uh, drawing for. Uh, Josh's film for the title, and I will send it to you as soon as I can think of it. Well, I'll do the drawing, and then I'll send it to the winner. So, uh, all right. Well, Josh, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And uh, as I said, it it remains to be seen um, what this will look like. Um, Already it's looking like, frankly, having a second person sort of, uh, I don't know, kind of gives me the... uh, poking the ribs that I need to uh, do more of these. So already uh, we, we, we want to try and do two a month instead of the usual one, if that. <laughs> so uh, so that's, that'll be a step in the right direction. But, uh, but also, uh, you know, Josh and I have been talking about the fact that, you know, I'm, I am sort of the primary host, and so if ever there's an episode that he can't be a part of or maybe isn't, frankly that interested in or something I, I don't know why that would happen but uh you know he doesn't necessarily have to be but uh this is this will sort of be our our default situation so uh hopefully everybody is is okay with it uh as i said before i hope everyone um is uh supportive as we kind of get going with this and uh yeah so here we go 
Josh, what are we talking about today? That's not true. I'll do it. Okay. So um, I was all, I was already. Were you? Okay. Well, you're I'll probably just, more ready than I am. Go ahead. Probably. Yeah. Wait, I, here, here's what we'll do. Hey Tyler, what are we talking about today? That's a little fast, but that's that's all right. You'll you'll learn. I'll you'll learn the, the ropes. Um, so yeah, today uh, we are talking about last year's, and maybe it's appropriate that we're doing this because uh, anybody who reads the blog knows that uh, Josh uh, writes for the blog occasionally, not very often, because uh, he's got other things to do. Um, I don't say that tongue in cheek. He has other things to do. <laughs> we all have other things to do. Wow. And so, um, but uh, for, but. You do write on and off uh, sort of a series called The Best of Pictures, and we should talk about the various uh, various best pictures of the last however many years. Uh, and since starting that, The King's Speech uh, was released in one best picture for 2010, uh, and uh, you haven't been able to write about that yet, so perhaps it's appropriate that, uh, that this will be the first one that we talk about yeah. with you on the show. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so The King's Speech, it was directed by Tom Hooper, it was written by David Seidler, and it did win various Oscars uh, last year, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Colin Firth, and Best Original Screenplay. Uh, was that all of them, or how, how many total was it? It, was f- it won four. four Those oh, are the four, four it won. Okay. Um, it, uh, people expected it to maybe get uh, a couple more, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, it, it only won four, but it won, you know... A lot of if, the it, if it had won ones. Best Actress, it would have been uh, one of the big five, but it wasn't up for act- Actress. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Before we before we get into you know some of the more thematic things that uh, that uh, we think about about the film, I, I just wanted to talk about the movie in general from an artistic point of view. Uh, listeners of Battleship Pretension uh, might know that this was my tenth favorite movie of last year. I will specify that. There were a lot of movies that I, at the time that I made that list, I had not seen several movies from the year before, and I do know that if I had seen a couple others like uh, Never Let Me Go and you know that sort of thing, I it probably would have been bumped out mm. of uh, of my top ten. But as it is, it was uh, number ten. It was a film that I enjoyed immensely. But uh, I will say at the top of the show that it was very good. I would venture I would venture to say that it was great in a lot of ways. But it is far from being a perfect film. Mm-hmm. Um, but a movie doesn't have to be perfect for me to enjoy it and for me to be uh, impacted by it. Yeah. And so um, so I'll talk about uh, my reaction to it in a moment. What, I believe we saw the King's Speech together uh, with a group of people. I think so, yeah. At the uh, Arclight. Mm-hmm. Um, what, did you, uh, what did you think of it? I, I, I kind of felt the same way as a lot of, a lot of people who have have talked about it that there was a there was a lot to get out of it and I think it's a very moving story it's a it's a great story um in the way that the story is translated to film I think that's where a lot of people had an issue with it not even that there are shortcomings in the way that it's transferred to film but that there isn't more done with with it being told in this medium. Mm-hmm. Um, so several people have said about the film that it was a director-proof film because uh, it's a very it's a, it's a very good story. It, you know, it, it, it moves along well. It's moving. It has good characters in it. And so really you just kind of need... You almost need a director who will just put the camera... You know, t- tell people where to put the camera and you've mm-hmm. got a movie. Um, 
So I know a lot of people, I, I wasn't angry about it, but I, I was upset with a lot of people that um, he did uh, Tom Hooper, right? I wanted to Tom say Hooper, Todd yes. for some reason. Yeah. Um, that Tom Hooper won the Best Director Oscar for that. I'm, I'm, I feel that that wasn't the best choice. Right. <laughs> I don't make these choices, though. But uh, Someday, buddy. <laughs> someday I will be the sole member of the Academy. <laughs> Like for the title wins again. <laughs> Ten Which, it's years a little running. strange that in this strange, I have to assume, post-apocalyptic world, that you will have made no more films, even though you're <laughs> clearly the only director working. Exactly. Um, I'm I'm too busy giving myself Oscars for the same movie over and over again to make a new movie. Um, no, but uh, th- there was a lot to like about the movie. Um, I think the most interesting thing to me was I didn't know that much about the character. I think I had heard stories about the uh, the his brother, the prince who had abdicated. Well, mm-hmm. I guess he... Did he abdicate before he became king? I think he was king for a little while. Okay. And you know what occurred king to me? King for a day. We haven't... Uh, it was a little longer that, than that, but not <laughs> much, actually. Yeah. Uh, it, it just occurred to me, like, we haven't really said what it is about. Oh, okay. um, I, I I naturally assume that a, a movie like this, most people have seen it. Most people have seen uh, it. But nonetheless, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and very briefly talk about it because something that I have learned is that people don't usually listen to episodes unless they have seen the movie. But mm. that's not always the case. So just to, just for those that uh, that haven't seen the film uh, or maybe need a, a slight refresher, uh, it is about King George the Sixth, who uh, was king in the uh, mid and late 30s and uh, early 40s whose father passed away and his brother, his older brother, became the king. And it's a good thing because uh, uh, this this uh, guy whose name was Albert or uh, Bertie, as, he is, uh, as he's known, um, he has a, you know, pretty bad stuttering problem. And so he... Could he feels like he could never be a king? He can't even really fulfill the duties of a prince, which is like giving speeches and such. And and just you know. to clarify, mm-hmm. Bertie is George the Sixth. Yes, yeah. yes. Sorry, he becomes King George the Sixth when he becomes king, uh, and so he uh, he can't really fulfill those duties. But he's you know he's sort of okay with it because he feels like he's never going to have to be king. It's not a problem. His older brother, his father was king, and now his older brother will be king, and he'll just sort of live a sort of a I don't know, uh, not sheltered, but he'll sort of be removed from this sort of this world, even though he is royalty. Uh, and then, yes, his uh, his older brother played in the film by Guy Pierce. He abdicates the throne so that he can be with this uh, American woman who uh, I believe had I think she was still with her husband or they were in the process of getting divorced or something like that. And it would have been, you know. A scandal, uh, a, a huge scandal for the king to king of England to marry uh, an American, you know, divorcee, and so he wound up. He was so in love with her that he abdicated the throne, and so suddenly, this uh, socially awkward stutterer becomes the king, and it's sort of it, about he and his speech therapist's uh, relationship as they work on making him more of a of a leader. Right, right around you know, right as World War Two is starting, when the country needs, 
you know, needs a leader, someone that they can look to uh, for hope and strength. So yeah. I'm sorry I, I, I interrupted you to, to explain that. So uh, okay. when you mentioned that it's a good story with good characters, this is the story you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. And that you didn't know much about it specifically. I, I didn't know a whole lot about uh, Birdie, about George VI. Um, I had heard the stories of, of the prince who, who abdicated, and that's, since that's sort of more of a romantic story, mm-hmm. you expect him to be the type that has a... Uh, a movie made about him and it it is interesting to see him as sort of the headstrong person that possibly he was i Mm. mean if you're not looking at it from a purely romantic point of view it it does look a little headstrong Mm -hmm. um but uh but anyway just the story of of the man who was king during uh was king of england during world war ii i think is Mm -hmm. is interesting regardless and i i had no idea that he had a speech problem that he Mm. He stuttered, and so uh, th- it's a. This was very interesting, a moving story. It was, uh, you know, history I didn't know, and history that's interesting. Not all history that you don't know is worth watching. <laughs> that's true, and it. But you know what it is. If if a certain story is done right, mm-hmm. anything can be interesting. Um, Tom Hooper directed another film uh, a couple years ago called The Damned United. Mm. Which is about a you know a, a soccer coach uh, in England. Uh, so, I, so a football coach. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, a football <laughs> coach. Uh, I apologize for any. Uh, we don't. You're I don't need to worry about that. Um, and uh, I, I don't. You know, I'm sorry. Obviously, I just called it soccer. I don't care about that sort of thing. Uh, but man, the film was very interesting, and I, I do think that Tom Hooper. While I while I agree with you, I don't think he deserved best director. I do think that he has the ability to take stuff that is. He takes material that is that could potentially only be interesting for a few, and makes it interesting for many without necessarily compromising it and making it lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. Um, he also was responsible. I don't remember if he directed all of the episodes of John Adams or just most of them, yeah. but, uh, but that's another good example is, you know, that is a series that takes place mostly in, you know, in the midst of the revolutionary war, John Adams didn't really see a lot of action. And mm-hmm. so he was just in room, you know, rooms debating with other, uh, you know, politicians of the day. And it's to Tom Hooper's credit that that is just as interesting, if not more interesting than the idea of being in battle. Yeah. Uh, watching, you know, he, he's a, a filmmaker who, I don't know, he finds the personal interactions really interesting and we find it interesting as a result yeah and i think putting uh looking at those personal interactions between historical figures Mm -hmm. uh, i think is interesting because he he, i think he does a good job of of humanizing them in because some of these characters john adams for well john adams you're seeing george washington and benjamin franklin thomas jefferson a lot of these people that are are uh, icons and almost live in this idealistic uh, mind that we you know we remember them as as almost purely symbols and so mm-hmm. to see them humanized is is if done well is very interesting mm-hmm. and um i wonder if and i don't know if anyone else has su- uh, someone else has probably suggested this but and am i correct in in remembering that the script for king's speech is based on a play I don't think it's really based on anything. I mean, it did win Best Original Screenplay, so um, it might be based on, like, an unproduced play. 
I um, thought it wasn't because I I could have sworn that when when he gave his acceptance speech, he mentioned that where he heard about it is his mother had seen this play that she told him about or something like that. I guess it was I, I guess it was that maybe it was I don't know if it was based directly on the play or maybe the events of the play, and then maybe. he chose to tell the story himself later. It might have been that because. It could be. If it is based on something you know previously published or performed material, then it, it had to be adapted. Yeah, so hmm. it might it might have been that. I, I wish that I knew more about that because it seems like if it were something that the script, I guess it is, isn't the script exactly, but maybe the story was intended for the stage. Sometimes those are the those are the sometimes movies where the original source material was intended for the stage seem to look uh, less directed. Because they don't require as much. I remember thinking the same thing about uh, Doubt. Mm-hmm. The uh, is it John Patrick Shanley? I think is yeah. his name. Um, because I remember thinking I was I was the the movie's good, but the the play is very good, and and you're almost you feel like you're just you're mostly seeing the play with a little bit of direction thrown in, and and the direction that is thrown in in Doubt actually. It's as if he's trying so badly to be like, no, this isn't a play, it's a movie. Look yeah. at this Dutch angle that's really distracting. Yeah, there were a few of those. So, um, yeah, and I do think I do think Tom Hooper does, because it would have been easy to just sort of sit back, have just a nice static camera, and just let the actors and the script do all the work. And he mm-hmm. doesn't do that. The camera no. does, there's good cinematography, it's edited well. Uh, and the director is definitely an active participant in what's going on. Yeah, and there's some there's some good there are scenes with, where the movement is is good. I'm particularly thinking of uh, one of the ones where they're moving through. I guess it's Buckingham Palace mm-hmm. uh, near the end, and um, just kind of moving through different rooms in the palace as you're following the characters. And, and mm-hmm. that's a that's a cool shot. Yeah, and so. Uh, but there, and so I'll talk about the stuff that I do like about it first. Of course, uh, first and foremost, the acting. I would say um, the acting is pretty great all around. Uh, Colin Firth won an Oscar for his performance as King George, and uh, you know, and it's sort of a standard thing. I'm sorry to frame this solely in terms of uh, of Oscars, but uh, unfortunately, that's when a film wins major Oscars, people tend to think in those terms and think, was that the best picture? Was he the best director? Was he the best actor? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and invariably, anytime you say that this is the best of any time, including if it's just for one year, people will almost always say, no, that's not true. There's always someone who will disagree with that right. claim. Uh, and, you know, perha- and that's probably true. I mean, honestly, when Tom Hooper won Best Director and we all expected David Fincher to win for The Social Network, Mm. so when Tom Hooper won, I remember thinking in my head like, hey, look who just made Best Director irrelevant and forgettable this year. (laughs) Not Tom Hooper, but the Academy, where it's just like, it'll be one of those, it'll sort of be like uh, the Saving Private Ryan year where it it lost Best Picture to Shakespeare in Love, which is a perfectly good movie, a very good movie. I'd say a great movie. Um, and Saving Private Ryan lost Best Picture to that, and now, and when I think back, it's like, oh, okay, so nineteen ninety eight will be the year that people remember. They will think that Saving Private Ryan won Best Picture, and then be surprised that it did not, and be like, <laughs> well, what did? Shakespeare in Love, and in doing so, they will. It'll actually sort of, I don't know, it won't do Shakespeare in Love justice because people will be angry at it. It's like, oh no, 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 it's still a wonderful film. Um, 
and so uh, so yeah, I don't I don't want to frame it solely in those terms. Unfortunately, I, I don't have a great deal of choice. Uh, I do think that Colin Firth uh, every bit deserved that Oscar uh, because agree. it is sort of standard Oscar fare. For it's like oh you're playing a guy with a disability okay well I guess he gets the Oscar but it's it's all in how he does it the character's written very well um, there are some kind of cliche moments in the script but for the most part uh, the characters are written pretty well pretty complex not quite so black and white the character is not seen as purely heroic uh, he doesn't spend his whole he doesn't spend the whole film talking about the things in his life that caused him to stutter mm-hmm. you know he didn't talk about that he. And that is to the credit of the screenwriter yeah. that he didn't want to put everything out there. And, uh, and so Colin Firth, I like that he plays the character as being very, very difficult. He doesn't, he's sought people's help and nothing, is hel- and nothing has happened. So he sort of maybe as a way of sheltering himself from further pain, he's very resistant when Jeffrey Rush's character, Lionel Logue, the, the speech therapist, uh, you know, who's... The, the relationship with whom is the primary thing of the, the, the film, the primary push of the film. Uh, when he meets up with him, he's very resistant to him, and it makes the character, I don't know, a li- sort of unlikable in those moments, or at the very least human, and not purely like, oh, I'm so on board with this guy, I have sympathy and pity for him. Mm-hmm. No, he's just a, he's just a guy who, frankly, occasionally uh, throws his title around mm-hmm. um, as a way of getting what he wants, because that's sort of what you do. I would, yeah, <laughs> and so uh, so his performance is very solid, and and you know when you when you see Colin Firth perform in other things, you recognize he has a very smooth way of speaking. Whereas in this, even when he's not stuttering, he still has like a pretty heavy in- impediment. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't speak very well, even when he speaks clearly. Yeah. And uh, and I like that he was willing to go full force with that and not just sort of give a little head nod towards stuttering and then everything is as eloquent as can be beyond that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I've been talking for a while. Did, what did you have to say about uh, the acting, whether it be Colin Firth or anybody else? Yeah, I, I felt like... Uh, I mean, the the heavy lifting is ter- in terms of the acting is all done by, by Colin Firth and, uh, and um, Jeffrey Rush. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter does a does a fine job. Mm-hmm. She's not given a whole lot to do with that character, um, but uh, she also does a fine job. Uh, but the scenes between the two of them are the best, and it's um, what, one thing I was going to say, which made me think of when you were talking about uh, Colin Firth's performance. One of the scenes that that I really like in the performance, I think, brings out a lot of those other elements almost incidentally, is the first scene where you see him with his daughters mm-hmm. um, because somehow there, because we've only seen him in uncomfortable positions. So you're, you're tempted, especially seeing someone who, who has a stutter. Cause I don't know if you've ever known anyone who has a stutter. I, I've met a few people who did. And I, I worked with one guy who did. And if you're not too familiar with it, you're, you're almost like, are they always nervous? Like you you don't know how to approach it if you're unfamiliar mm-hmm. with uh with the with what it's like mm-hmm. so i think as viewers were we, the first thing we see him the the king or birdie the first time we see him he's giving a speech and he's having difficulty with it and then i think did, the next time we see him maybe he's with a speech therapist that he's uncomfortable with i think i think so yeah 
So all we're only seeing him in these uncomfortable situations where it's directly addressing the problem, the issue that he has a speech impediment. And then soon on, early in, we get to see the scene where he is he is at home. He he's literally in his home. He's with his wife and his daughters. He doesn't have to to impress anyone. And so one, you get to kind of see what his voice is like when he's not trying. You know, when he's not when it's not a visible effort to speak correctly. Um, and you also get to see kind of what his personality is when he's not having to throw around his title, when he's not having to be king. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really like how that kind of layers um, those those aspects of his personality into the rest of the performance. And you actually, and you also see like that he can be a very, you know, a surprise. I, I had a, I had a, a college professor who had a, a stammer, and it was mm. pretty pronounced. Really? Um, and uh, and you know he would lecture the whole time, and he would always just keep going. And he knew what he you know he made reference to his his stammer, and and you know you just keep going. Um, but I I remember I do think, and this this might be very wrong of me to think, but uh, you know the fact that he was married. Um, I know it sounds weird, but part of me instinctively feels like. When you're romantically involved with somebody, a lot of that is about communication. And this guy, and also early on in, in any romance, you're probably going to be a little nervous. And so I have to assume that as he went on, I don't know, dates or whatever it is a, a prince does with somebody when he's dating them, um, I have to assume that he was probably a little nervous with his now wife. And I could see him sort of, I don't know, sort of. I, I have a when it's all so much about communication, especially early on, it makes me wonder how that happened. But as you see him with his family, you see that he's a, when it's really only it's really when he's at ease that you see that he's a charming person. He's a very sensitive person. He's very caring, and that scene is really great because you know he's telling his daughters a story, and uh, and it's really I don't know it's really quite. It's written very well, but it's really quite lovely how he does it because he takes because there's moments of wit in there. He talks about, uh, you know, this uh, man who is a prince who was turned into a penguin and uh, and then he misses his daughters. And so he swims uh, the entire ocean to see them. And then when he does, uh, he you know, he says, you know what I you know what he was turned into? And they're like a prince. He's like, no, an albatross. And he's like, but his wings were so big that he could, you know, it's just, it's such a nice moment. And he hugs his daughters and, and the way he tells the story, the fact that he tells the story and the way that he ends it, uh, really wins you over to the character. And you realize that he's not, he has this problem, but he is not disabled in, he's not socially disabled. You know, he has the ability to communicate with people. Um, and you really feel like, oh, it's. It's a shame that he was born into the family that he was born into and it, things are expected of him because it's really in those such circumstances that he is at his worst. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, and so I do want to uh, move on to his relationship with Jeffrey Rush. And of course, that, that means uh, talking about Jeffrey Rush a little bit as well. Um, I sometimes forget how much I love Jeffrey Rush as an actor <laughs> uh, because I feel like we all just take him for granted. And then you see him in something like this and you realize... He is so when he's when he's required to be um he is so at ease on screen. He's so easy to watch. 
I don't know, he's very present and especially in a character like that who has a certain degree, not he's not he doesn't exude it, but he has a certain degree of confidence in himself and his opinions and he's just and he's almost always in control of the situation and Jeffrey Rush as an actor knows that and and realizes well if I'm in control and I need to seem confident for these for my students usually children but you know adults as well for them to trust me I need to give them something to trust in which means I need to just be at ease but still have a fair amount of confidence and uh, and that's what he is pretty much throughout but you do see that he genuinely cares for his students mm-hmm. and uh it's a really wonderful performance if you know to th- think in terms of oscars again he was up for best supporting actor and he lost to uh christian bale for the fighter who gives a really great performance a- and i do think it, christian bale's performance is genuinely great but it's also a little showier yeah, and, and sometimes uh, that's the way the Academy goes. You get yeah. something that draws more attention, even though it's it's just as good. Yeah, and it's also a a, a lead actor who's in a supporting role, yeah. which they do like to uh, yeah, that's true. You know, reward from time to time. <laughs> like, oh, look who look who's gotten himself so lowly. Look who's willing to slum for a little <laughs> bit. You get an Oscar. There you go. Oh, you look so unattractive, and we all know how attractive you are. Here you go. It's just like when George Clooney shaved his hairline back, grew a beard, and got and gained some weight for Syriana. Um, although he's good in Syriana, don't get me he wrong. He is good in Syriana. But, uh, so, yeah, and so as far as the arc of the film, I also like that uh, that the... Uh, unlike, unlike what a lot of films like this do, even uh, maybe almost especially films that are based on a true story and inspiring true stories, they will jump to inspiring maybe a little too fast. Mm-hmm. And by the end, the character, man, he's got this thing licked. And it's no problem. I, I think I know what you're going to say, and I was anticipating the same problem. I thought that this was, that by the end, he was going to be able to just speak beautifully. That everything, man, he worked with Logue, and, and he's able to work all his issues out, and everything's fine. But he isn't. He still needs help and the big difference the the difference fr- that you know he's different from at the end that he is from the beginning as a function of his confidence level and his hope and his and his strength and he realizes i think he also realizes that he is stronger than he thought he was and that is a huge and that will make a difference when it comes to how he speaks now he presents himself but it also makes just a, a big difference to him personally you know it's- there Go ahead. It's more a change at the, the changes in how he sees himself and mm-hmm. what he sees that he is. And that to me is much more satisfying <laughs> than if he just, uh, oh, this guy who stutters now doesn't. Oh, good. Now I, now all is right with the world and I can go home. You know, science I, fixes everything. <laughs> and so it's, uh, so I, I like that it, it leaves some things. It's not like it, it's a bad ending or any, a negative ending and you're, you wind up being kind of hopeless, but, uh, but not everything is, is fixed, nor should it be. Like that's, that's the way it, it goes. And he's willing to do the work, and he doesn't pity himself so much, and I think he recognizes, uh, and I guess that, you know, uh, maybe I'll save that for the, what I was about to say, I think I'll save it for uh, a few minutes from now. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, what I didn't like about the film, because there are things that I don't care for, um, things that maybe are a, a bit more conventional. Um, 
and I do like one of the things. By the way, uh, this film is rated R for language because the character learning to swear and embracing that as a way of expressing his emotion that is a significant part of the film. So it is rated R, and it's willing to be rated R. Uh, whereas these days, if you're going to make a feel good movie, it better be PG thirteen. Well, most versions of the film were willing to be rated R. Is that what you were getting to? How about this? All the artistic versions were willing to be rated R, but uh, yes, then the studio was like, "Oh, wait a minute, we we weren't. I don't think we were anticipating this being, uh, you know, winning best director and best picture." Um, Okay, so they do a they did a a a cut that made it PG thirteen and changed some of the uh, F words to uh, S words, and I felt and I understand like you want to you want to change it for a certain audience, but part of me is like, you know. Those words that you changed, they helped him. So now you're being disingenuous to the story you're telling. You know what I mean? Hmm. I don't know. Do you think that or do you do you care one way or the other? I mean, I feel like they were they were written for a good reason. And again i don't know the that much the reality of the story so i suppose you could make the argument that that never actually happened and that it was in there for uh sensationalism or or even i think it could be argued they're in there for a cheap laugh hmm. um but i think the way most people responded to it and i think the way i responded to it was like you said him becoming comfortable with with really expressing frustration and anger and and uh in a way not having to realizing how to work outside the decorum that is being the prince which Mm -hmm. i think is required to a degree for him uh in order to work with lionel Mm -hmm. which is what ultimately helps him to to overcome his disability um so changing changing the specific words I don't know. I don't like it, and I I would prefer to have the film just as it was originally intended. Mm-hmm. I can see how some audiences might w- would get the exact same effect out of it without having certain words in it. I suppose. I, I would I would like to have a conversation with those people about why yeah. that issue is, and I think that we would differ and maybe learn from each other, but that. I actually just got an email from uh, from a listener asking what I thought about the use of profanity, not necessarily in movies, but in everyday life. And it, and in thinking about it, it, got me thinking about my own use of profanity because, in, you know, aside from this podcast, I do swear, not very often, but from time to time. And uh, and I was thinking about like, I don't know, it really just this email caused me to think about the use of words and the use of language which made and then i knowing that i was going to be uh talking about this today it got me thinking about why those use were those those words were specifically used in the film and i think precisely because they they are in in polite society considered offensive and you don't get you don't get a more polite society than British royalty. <laughs> and so for him to, to use those words specifically, I think, was very liberating for him. And I, much in the same... And, and if he were to say, you know, only PG-13 language, admittedly, it's still PG-13 language. He's still throwing out stuff that he probably normally wouldn't. But um, but nonetheless, I do think that uh, 
if that's the story you're going to tell, clearly the director and the writer wanted to tell that story. And I think a lot of it is based on like Lionel, Lionel Logue's like personal journal and diary. So I think it probably was pretty close to the truth. Yeah. And it's just like if if you're, it's a film that celebrates the ability to communicate. And swear words are in it, are one of the tools that we can use to communicate and make ourselves heard. That, to me, is the point of them in conversation. And and the truth is that while they, those words, uh, I'd say, for the most part, are not necessary, they do communicate something in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, if the move, if the movie has a goal to communicate this specific thing. There are certain specific things that can be only conveyed with certain specific words. Mm. Okay, so as I uh, as I was mentioning before, there are while I do think that the film everything about it could have been extremely conventional in a blindside type of way, which is sort of my go to for everything I don't like about certain movies based on true stories. Did you see the Blindside? I didn't. Okay, I, I, that's a choice. Maybe we'll. Uh, Maybe we'll watch it for this. Oh, boy. Anyway, so, um, yes, it's a very, it, it bothers me a lot. I find it very condescending and all that kind of thing. Anyway, um, so every almost every chance that it could have had to go in that direction, it didn't. Unfortunately, there are a couple moments that I think are maybe a little, uh, a little easy, a little precious, and one could say a little adorable. Um, that sort of bother me, as well as, uh, I don't know, there, there's a very pivotal moment in the film that I feel like, oh, it, it, I don't buy that. I don't believe it. I feel like that is the conceit of the film, ma- of the screenwriter, because you've done, they've done such a good job of creating real characters that when they have the characters do something or say something that I feel like isn't totally real but fits in very well with the overall theme, I feel like, oh, I see see the strings here. Um, So there's a couple of those here and there in the film that kind of take me out of it. I'm curious to hear what those are. I I may agree with you. None come to mind right away, though, I think. Well, maybe one. Well, the, the, the big one that I always point to, and this is a big moment in the trailer, and I think that's notable. It is the trailer moment, which is uh, Lionel is uh, sitting on this old chair, or I don't know what it is. I don't totally recall what it is, but it's very important and historical. <laughs> and uh, and there is some nice humor when the when the king is upset with him for sitting in his ch- in this chair, and Lionel, in true fashion, is like people have carved their names on it. Like that moment is really nice because he's just. But you also see that he's sort of baiting the king to get. Because he's about to, like, be, like, I don't know, he's about to have this big ceremony, and he's very nervous, and so this is Lionel trying to draw things out of him uh, and get him upset, because when he's upset, he speaks pretty clearly. But there's a there's a moment when Lionel just keeps, he just keeps interrupting him, and the king gets more and more upset and louder and louder, and Lionel says, why should I listen to you? And then the king yells out, because I have a voice. And then Lionel says, whoops, Lionel says, uh, yes, you do. And it's, this, and it's this nice little moment. It's a nice little trailer moment, but it didn't ring true to me. Because I, nothing about the character of Bertie would have said, because I have a voice. Now, if he had said, because I'm the king, and then 
Lionel could have said, yes, you are. That could, that's, I think that stands to reason that he would have said that. And I think that's just as big a moment. He's embracing who he actually is, yeah. which is something Lionel's tried to get him to do. But because I have a voice speaks so specifically to the theme that I feel like it's it's not totally genuine. Because I have a voice sounds like something that the, that a screenwriter would say, Absolutely. not something that the king would say. Because he's not or thinking anybody. of it. Well, yeah, 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 maybe so. But he's not thinking he, because he's a person, and the movie otherwise has done a very good job of making him into a very believable human. Mm-hmm. Um, he wouldn't think of things in these grand uh, kind of metaphysical terms, especially when he's angry mm-hmm. when he's you know in the moment of uh of and when he's in a moment of passion he's not going to all of a sudden come out with uh he's not going to going to all of a sudden be thinking of things in terms of the metaphysical right yeah so it's uh so moments like that and then there's a little moment when uh the king is over at lionel's house and then lionel's wife comes home and he hasn't told her that uh that he's been working with the king and so like he like hides a little bit and while the actors do get genuine chuckle moments out of it and that is a testament to the actors including by the way i didn't write the actress's name down but the the woman who plays lionel's wife wife, she has this little moment where she's just like looks at him as she gives a little bow to the king and it's and it's and she's not mad she's not you know she's not going to faint or anything silly like that but it's just this it is a very nice little moment all the actors, they do what they can to deflate the silliness out of that scene, but it still is a little like, uh, this isn't, you know, faulty towers, you know, this isn't uh, a farce or something. This is, in theory, a realistic drama, you know, and that part just seems a little cutesy to me. I actually do like that scene. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think one of the things that I like about it goes with sort of the themes that we're going to talk about in a minute and Mm. i may even like it for the wrong reason oh uh uh-oh which will be interesting to talk about okay um stay tuned folks oh man that's very exciting uh so i don't know the stuff that i don't like is when they they like they're doing they're doing such a good job of of illust of exploring a theme illustrating a theme and then and but not putting i don't know not putting a big stamp on it, but of mm. every once in a while they do, and that sort of bothers me. The the one scene that I was thinking of where where and, and I do now remember sp- specifically the throne one. I remember there's a there's a little bit of a moment where you're like, ah, eh, that's that's kind of a maybe a groaner. Mm-hmm. But uh, the one I thought of, which I don't really like, is where uh, Bertie's preparing to give the big speech to the to the nation at the end of the movie, and in ramping himself up for him, we kind of see him like. In a sense, the movie taking us down memory lane, saying, remember the times when he needed to sing to remember something? And so he sings a little bit. And remember the times when he needed to swear to get through something? And so he swears in it a little bit. And so, I, I don't know. That one seems to me more like, uh, less like, I think what the film wants it to be is us showing, here, here's how he uses all the things that he learned. Mm-hmm. But what I think it comes off as is the film saying, hey, remember the movie that you just watched? <laughs> Yeah. Here's a best of. Yeah. Um, so that that moment I don't really like. It's almost like movies that have a flashback of something from the film. Yeah. Where it's just like, yeah, I was there. It was only an hour ago. I'm not that dumb. Hello, Wolverine. I didn't see Wolverine. Oh, don't see that one. 
Okay, we're watching that one for the next episode. I'm not watching. I've seen it once. I don't have to see it again. All right, well, I'm not watching it. That's fine. We're still doing it. Okay. So this will be be your show. Wolverine and just Wolverine. (laughs) Nothing can be uh, paired with that film. (laughs) It stands on its own. Um, But, uh, yeah, and it's... So, yeah, stuff like that where it's it, it's pretty conventional, but I don't know. It's And I know that for some people that was enough to get them to be like, man, this movie's not great. It's like, yeah, but it does those conventions pretty well. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't hang too much on them. And there's enough, there's enough good stuff and, I don't know, there's enough good material. And there are enough moments where they could have gone straight conventional and they don't. That makes me want. I I can recommend it up and down. I I just bought it because it is a movie that I feel like I will revisit very uh, pretty frequently because I like those performances and I like the script a lot. Here is the thing, though: there are some movies that because it's a certain type of acting and a certain type of script, which is intensely filmic, that I can throw in. Knowing that, like, I don't know, I can just kick back and watch it, and I'm not going to be immensely, ch- excuse me, immensely challenged by it. Um, it is a film that I don't find that challenging, but it is engaging. Yeah, and I would agree with that. And so I can throw it in pretty easily. Uh, that doesn't necessarily diminish it, but it's, I don't know, it's that kind of movie for me. Um, so, but it is a movie that I recommend. So if you haven't seen it, well, quite frankly, if you haven't seen it, I don't know why you've been listening to this. But, uh, but <laughs> now yeah, you know everything that happens. But hey, it's in the history books. Ex- there you go. Uh, so yeah, by and large, it's a, it's a film that I like quite a bit. Um, and uh, in true more than one lesson fashion, I now know. I, I I we now get to the point where I don't yet know if I want to talk about the themes that I want to talk about or the companion film. I say go into the themes. Okay. So, for me, the bi- there are a lot of themes going on in this film, but one really jumped out at me that I wanted to talk about very specifically uh, because it pertains, well, it pertains very much to my life, but also the lives of various people that I know out here in Los Angeles. Um, and that is the theme of uh, dramatic change in direction uh, for one's life um, because... Both of our lead characters in the King's Speech have a dramatic change in direction for their career. Not not necessarily so dramatic for Lionel, but as we see in the film, Lionel, he does speech therapy and he's very good at it, and I think he does find it rewarding, but he also enjoys acting, and you do kind of get the impression that's what he would really like to do. And I think it's clear that he has had to make a big change of direction mm-hmm. in the past if he's not making it now right uh, i think we're seeing the king in the throes of the change yeah by mere virtue of becoming the king um and with lionel i think more it's something that has happened maybe gradually over time mm-hmm. but it's for him i think as big of a change and we still see some remnants of his old yeah. goals and that he you know as he uh, auditions for uh, for a play um richard the third richard the third indeed um and so we see, you know, Lionel, he wanted he wanted this thing, but it became clear that sort of not even necessarily his fallback, but this other thing that he had put some time into and again found it rewarding, quickly it quickly becomes clear to him or slowly as as Josh uh, mentioned, 
it becomes clear to him that this is what he's going to be doing and which is speech therapy helping children and adults hmm. for birdie of course uh something very very dramatic which is he was planning on just living a pretty simple quiet life with his wife and his children yes he happens to be born into royalty but everything about his life says don't worry about it you're <laughs> going to be pretty you're going to be privileged to be sure but you don't need to do anything you don't want to do. Maybe you have to do one of these terrible speeches from time to time, but if you do enough bad ones, chances are they're not going to ask you to do very many more. And so so he had sort of I clearly he had sort of settled down into a certain type of life. And then quite su- quite suddenly, but not totally suddenly because it becomes pretty clear pretty quick Oh my gosh, my brother's going to abdicate. He's not even going to die. He is purposely leaving, knowing full well he's leaving it to me. And so not only is he being thrust into this position that almost anybody else in the world will be like, this is awesome. He's the, he happens to be the one person in the world who's like, I re- this is the last thing I want. Uh, so he, he's pushed into it. And not even... He's pushed into it by somebody pushing him into it. Mm-hmm. You know, if his if his father had died and then his brother had died, it's like, all right, well, this is this is what needs to happen. But his brother, it is interesting because so many people frame uh, his brother's uh, romance as this amazing thing. He gave up being king for her, and in doing so, gave the throne over to someone that he himself knew couldn't handle this at all. It almost seems more selfish in the movie. It which really it may does. have been in reality, who knows. And uh, and who I knows. do think we didn't really talk about him very much, but I do think Guy Pierce does a very good job of playing the 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 older brother who isn't totally selfish and he certainly isn't very uh he's not very sympathetic, but he's not mm-hmm. totally selfish. You do see that he laments the decision he has to make, and I think he feels very bad for the position he's putting his younger brother in, but he feels like he has to do it, um, which is, you know, it, I'm sure there's an interesting movie to be made there. It'd be interesting if they made that movie with the same actors. <laughs> I like that kind of thing. Um, much in the same way, I, when I watched John Adams, uh, directed by uh, Tom Hooper, um, I remember thinking, like, man, they should just make George Washington with all the same actors d- done by the same director, and then they should do Thomas Jefferson. Because we do see all these other guys in supporting roles. I want them to be the lead and everyone else to be... I just want a Rashomon... I want a, just a, a, a rash of, uh, of miniseries all about this from different perspectives. I hope it is like Rashomon, where, where like George Washington saw things totally different, <laughs> differently. Like John Adams is this squirrely little turtle man who's always complaining about things. And, like, I don't know. He's played by, like, Danny DeVito. <laughs> As the penguin. As the penguin, no question <laughs> about it. They're like, okay, bust out that penguin that penguin suit. And Warner Brothers like, I don't know why we kept it, but you know what? It's a good thing we did. It's still here. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I the idea that Birdie is led into the very last thing that he wants, where all eyes will be on him... And there, he had neither he nor anybody else has any reason to believe that he will do well at this. At a time when the country desperately needs a king that can 
you know, King. I mean, honestly, kings don't do that much, but they definitely are a figurehead, and and it, it gives someone. It gives the the country someone to look to. Exactly, and this is the exact sort of time when a country needs something like that, right. like a a time of of war, and especially war of this scale. Mm-hmm. That's when you need someone who can sort of speak for the country, and and uh, I don't know. And they do have uh, a, a nice moment that it might be a bit heavy handed, but it 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 plays pretty well, certainly on Colin Firth's face, where they're watching footage of Hitler, and of course. Hitler is, is the primary reason that Germany wound up being what it was, is they had an incredibly strong and charismatic leader. And meanwhile, they, England has this guy to stand up to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, King George, I will start, I will call him King George now because he's the king as I'm speaking about him now. King George is like, oh my gosh, I can't even come close to that. I mm-hmm. can't even get one sentence out. Yeah, and doesn't so, he say something like I, I don't know what he's saying, but he's he's sure saying it very well. Yeah, or... and so um, so yeah, it's that that is the theme that I wanted to sort of speak to, and because I think that happens a lot in our lives, it's not merely that we're asked to do something that we weren't planning on; it's that we were so sure we were headed in one direction, and we sort of made our plans in that way. Mm-hmm. And then we get thrown a thrown a curveball either as something that is put upon us or something that maybe is nagging in the back of our minds as like, eh, okay, I'm starting to think maybe I'm not so sure about this thing. And uh, and I, I will tell a quick story from, uh, from my own life. And listeners know this already from various, uh, I think I've told a couple of times now, certainly in my testimony episode, that like, and this happens a lot in Hollywood. It's happened to a lot of people that we know that they come out here to pursue some type of film thing. But as they get more involved, they actually find that they don't want to be involved in the film community at all, or w- their level of, of involvement is not what they thought it was going to be. You know, for me, I came out to pursue screenwriting, and I, and I was pursuing it to a certain extent, and, you know, I was applying to things, and nothing was really happening. Uh, but I did have battleship pretension going and i was enjoying that it just seemed like a fun hobby but then as time went on like screenwriting shrunk in my mind as film criticism grew and before you knew it i had like one was immensely more rewarding than the other but i still was just like no i planned on being a screenwriter it's why i came out here there's a stigma to film critics that i that i want no part of i don't want to do this I came out here for one reason. I want to stick to that. And I think you'll find that from time to time. And, and eventually, when I embraced film criticism, I mean, like, I was, I wound up being so, I was so much happier with that. Um, and I do feel like that was the direction that God was calling me towards. But, you know, I was talking with someone just the other day who was talking about how he came out here to be an actor. He tried. He went on auditions. He didn't do that great. And then he suddenly felt that he was supposed to head towards uh, stunt work. And much in the same way as with film criticism, you know, the attitude is like, why would God ever call anybody towards stunt work? And the, and the reason is this, like, why wouldn't he? Someone's going to be a stuntman anyway, might as well be a Christian, and if you're good at it, then why wouldn't you? Um, and so, and, and there's all kinds of, of stories, and I won't, including people that have been on this podcast, I won't say who they are specifically, I I don't think they'd have a problem with it, but nonetheless. 
And so, uh, so that's sort of the theme that I wanted to talk about because it can be very jarring, but good things can come out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's interesting too because I, in in terms of this, you hear people say, especially you hear Christians say, "Oh, if you want to hear, if you want to make God laugh, then make plans," which makes him sound a little vindictive. It it really does, and I I I mean I, I feel like that's a. It's kind of a joke of like, what's what? What do you think of God? If if that's the way you're depicting of him, depicting him, but kind of Machiavellian. Yeah, but I think you can take that that further. Uh, there's a certain attitude towards that, which is almost to say to to think that if you want to do something, well, God doesn't want you doing that. Right. God's plan is for you to do the the thing that you don't want to do. Right. And I think there's a there's a there's some kind of strand in the culture that, in, in Christian culture specifically, I guess American Christian culture, mm-hmm. that that is to think that what God requires of us is, is specifically the things that we don't want to do. Um, which I don't think is the case, and I don't think that follows biblically. Um, I think it is the case that God sometimes does have people do. Mm-hmm things that they they do not want to do um and uses them for good but i i think people sometimes again in that american christian culture read that wrong as thinking that that's the reason god has them do these things yeah he does it to spite you it's like whatever you don't want to do i will have you do that solely because you don't want to do it Mm -hmm. not because you may not want to do it but you are uniquely qualified to do it and very few people could do it better than you and that's and you will excel at it and the and the world will be made better and you know the kingdom of god will be stronger if you do this thing hmm. like that's what it's really there not you don't want to do this ah eh, screw you i'm god you're going to do it yeah I, I think it needs to be framed more in the in the positive sense which is the opposite of what people are doing when they're saying oh you want to make god laugh make a Make a plan as if God is out there laughing at it. <laughs> I mean, imagine that God who's who's sitting up in heaven is like, "Oh, look at these idiots! They think this is what they're doing," <laughs> and having a good laugh and drinking a beer or something. I don't know. <laughs> Putting his feet up on the coffee table and Mrs. God's like, "Stop that! There's guests coming over." You've really uh, <laughs> crafted a, a scene here. Uh, I especially like Mrs. God. I can only imagine Mrs. Claus. By the way, when you say that. Um, well, you, you know, God, Santa Claus are all... They're all basically the same, right? The same, right? Spaghetti Monster? <laughs> Mrs. Spaghetti Monster? Um, flying Spaghetti Monster, I'm sorry. Flying, that's, come on. <laughs> there's Sac- no... <laughs> sacrilege. There's no landlocked Spaghetti Monsters out there. <laughs> um, so, uh, and here's the thing. What I wanted to mention, what I started to mention earlier, but I, I, I put it off specifically for this reason. Bertie became the king... He fe- he didn't want to do it. He felt he couldn't do it, and yet here he was. And I would venture to say that he is exactly the king that that country needed at that time, precisely because everybody knew what his struggle was, mm. and the fact that they knew that he had a stutter. He didn't want this. He didn't ask for it, and yet here we are. And he's rising to the challenge, much like we need to. We need to rise to the challenge of fighting Hitler and fighting fascism. And so, like, as opposed to if his brother, who was much better suited to being the king, he certainly would have inspired people 
but not in the same way. Mm. In re- really, like King George the Sixth was England in microcosm. Yeah, you know, he was he symbolized everything they needed to do, and if he can do it, we can do it too. And it really is. So the thing he wanted to do the least, everything about him was uniquely qualified to be the the person that they most needed. And I feel like that's that might be what we need to th- how we need to think, you know, cuz also Lionel Logue was not a successful actor. If he had been, who knows what would have happened. He was put where he was and he had the level of success he got he had over here, which is not much, precisely so that he could put a little bit more time and effort into being uh, a rather unconventional speech therapist Mm -hmm. so that he could help this larger thing, even though if you would ask him, asked him like 10 years before, I'm sure if you had phrased it like, hey, by the way, you want to help the King of England? uh, If you put it like that, but even then, I'm sure he'd be incredulous and be like, I don't think you're being truthful to me. Um, And so those are the terms that I want to think about, and I think I'll bring up the companion film now. Before oh, you ahead. do, I was I, I thought I might go on to the the other thought that I had had about okay. um, about that one particular scene is um, interestingly one thing that our, our our pastor was talking about this morning and some of this may may come into uh, it's it's Sunday by the way here in sunny California um, just to give you some context September eleventh oh yeah that's right context anyway. Uh, Yes, uh, one of the things that we were we uh, were talking about this morning was how um, people are looking for people intrinsically look for justification, um, be that in uh, through through their careers, as mostly we're talking about here, or um, through acceptance of of peers or or family or or um, uh, relationships. Um, and I think that sometimes is one of the things that butts up against this idea of doing what it is that God wants you to, because we are looking for justification on our own terms. And so we might be thinking, well, I'm supposed to be, uh, in Lionel's case, I'm supposed to be an actor. Um, and he's seeing that as that's where he gets his justification. And so he might feel like he doesn't he's not important as a person or he doesn't have value or worth as a person because he's not doing the thing that he feels like he's meant to do like he feels like the thing that gives him value the thing that gives him worth is acting and he's not doing that um so uh, (laughs) we could ultimately get into this uh into the the places where the film is not consistent with christianity which ultimately a lot of films you can boil mm-hmm. that down to um but i think the the appeal that the film is going for in the scene where lionel's wife meets the the king and the queen mm-hmm. is is to show us the appeal is in showing us that he has achieved something um, the appeal is is his wife just thought that he was a he was a regular speech therapist he was nobody important and all of a sudden here's the king of England and the queen of England have showed up at his house and so I think the appeal is for you to to for for me at least I think was 
to have her see how important he is. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's not, uh, (laughs) that's not a very good thing to like about that because you're, the reason I'm liking it is because I'm seeing him get this, this justification. He's, he's vindicated in some way. Yeah. Um, but it should be noted he's vindicated with somebody that he never needed vindication from. She didn't require this of him. You know what I mean? It's not like she said, oh, you're just wasting your time with the speech therapy thing. That's true. That is you true. Know? So in that way, I think it is a, it is a nice moment because mm-hmm. she's she was supportive of her husband all the way through. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and this was just like... I you know icing on the cake for her, and I think there is another thing that I like about it, which I think is good is is uh, his humility comes out in that moment is because he he certainly could have mentioned to it this to her, but it's obvious in that moment that he hasn't, and so I do kind of like that aspect of it, which I think is is cool that here he is doing something that is very respectable in the world's terms at least, and he hasn't chosen to boast about it. So I do like that element of it, which I think is good. And I do think, much in the same way, uh, if you're ever watching like a movie that has like certain tawdry content, and it didn't, and it doesn't really bother you, but you then you watch it again with someone that it might bother, you immediately start to see things through their point of view, and you're like, "Oh, geez, here we go!" <laughs> like you start like something that you ne- it never would have occurred to you would would be offensive. Somehow you immediately become sensitive to it. Because you're with someone who might see it that way. Yeah. Much in the same way as that, I do feel like, you know, that I do like, there are parts of that scene that I like. It's mostly the actors and what they're able to do with it. But it's almost like he he suddenly becomes nervous, not because he'll ne- necessarily get in trouble with his wife, that might be part of it, but at the same time, it's almost as if once she meets the king and queen... She, you know, you would think that he would like puff himself up and be like, that's right. What do you think of this? But he doesn't. He actually seems as in awe as she is. And it's almost like because she is there and she's new to the situation, it's almost like he sort of sympathizes with her and realize sort of realizes uh, all over again, like, this is pretty amazing what I am doing, what I what I have been the situation I've been put into. Um, and so, and that's, I think that's purely Jeffrey Rush that is able to do that. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, but yeah, that is a, that is an interesting, an interesting way of looking at that scene from a thematic standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, so I do want to, uh, very briefly get into the companion film, which is a movie that, uh, you know, we're talking about movies that are very palatable and, uh, very (laughs) conventional and, uh, the film Mr. Holland's Opus, which came out in 1995, uh, and it was directed by Stephen Herrick. And direct and and written by Patrick Sheen Duncan. I'm sorry, I haven't heard of either of those people, and I know that sounds terrible. But it stars uh, Richard Dreyfuss, who incidentally was nominated for Best Actor for his uh, his role in this. Um, and uh, I enjoy Mr. Holland's Opus quite a bit. What do you think? There's a lot. There's a lot that I like in it. I really like Richard Dreyfuss's performance, which is. Uh, I like to see him in performances where I feel like it, he gets to play some nuance because a lot of the times I think of him as kind of the screaming guy from Jaws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and a lot of times he sort of plays that that like nervous, hunched shoulders type who's always up, uptight about everything. Um, and I think this is one where we get to see him have to 
he has he he shows a wide range in the movie, mm-hmm. and I think I like that about it. And um, I like some of the, I I have played music. I'm not a musician, but I have played musical instruments, and and so the the, the music aspect of it is kind of neat too. And to and to show people discovering that is is fun to see to a to a point. Um, there is there is an element of it being just a feel good movie that mm-hmm. I think I don't like. Um, I think there's a there's a uh, the scene right after um, when um, uh, Glenn Headley first it's Headley not Headley right? I think Headley. Yeah, that's what I that's what I've said. What I've always said um, when she tells Richard Dreyfus, Mister Holland, that she's pregnant, and he doesn't respond. With excitement right away, seems to have maybe a negative response, and she goes off to her room crying. And he comes in and he tells her a story, which first of all, I, th- I feel like there are very few people when comforting their their wife go, "I got a monologue for you. It's going to turn things around." Um, he says, "Oh, I, I when I heard John Coltrane the first time, I I didn't like it at all. But then the more I listened to it, then I I came to love it. That's that's the essentially the point of the monologue, and." So I guess the idea he's trying to get to her is like, if you say this, the the more I get used to this idea, the more wonderful it will become to me. And I think she says to him, if that's a lie, it's the sweetest lie I've ever heard. (laughs) And I said to myself, a man wrote this script. (laughs) (laughs) Which is... uh, (laughs) It's just... So there are some moments like that. I don't think it's purely the the virtue of it being a man. I don't think that the problems that I have with the script are purely because it's a man, but that was one line in particular mm-hmm. that I thought no no woman would say that. Sweetest lie I've ever... It's like... That's what, like one of those things like, love means never having to say you're sorry. What, are you kidding me? <laughs> that Love is exactly the opposite. <laughs> yeah. And so that some other things that I don't like about this, and actually these may be things of the time, are... Uh, some movies, I think maybe this may have happened a lot in the in the mid '90s. In evoking the '60s, felt like they had the '60s and '70s felt like they had to show us uh, John F. Kennedy. They mm-hmm. had to show us Vietnam. They had to show us hippies. Like right. they have to get that stuff in there to be like, remember the good old days. And th- there are moments. Uh, it may not have seemed. I don't like, know if people look at Vietnam and say well, the good old days. <laughs> there are some people, I'm sure. Um, but that there are moments where I, I think they're meant to be used as montages, but it seems sort of like a, a, a feast of nostalgia in, mm-hmm. in some way, and and I, it's not necessary in order to show us that time has passed. I do wonder if if because yeah, I, I do think you found that a, a little bit in the mid '90s, and I wonder if it is if it was kicked off by Forrest Gump, which did it very well, which is be. this one man happens to be a part of every major thing <laughs> in American history, which is which because there's a sort of there's almost a mystical quality to that. Um, but I do think that other films, it's like, OK, if we're going to have let's do this just like Forrest Gump, mm-hmm. where everything is nostalgic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think I do like that uh, one of the one of the historical things that it does latch on to because it is specifically music related is the death of John Lennon. Because while that is yeah. a big thing, it's not as big as Kennedy. It's mm-hmm. not as big as like Martin Luther King, but it's a big deal for music lovers. Yes, and it applies to that situation. Something mm-hmm. like that. It's certainly, I and it, it uh, certainly I like 
it dealing with that, and I like what it does for the script. Mm-hmm. Like if it was just a big point, it was if it was something big that happened that would apply to these characters, but didn't have so much to do with the story, then it would it would really be the same thing as just putting it in there to as a placeholder or just mm-hmm. some kind of signal of the times. But um, since it actually serves the script in some way, I, I like that. Um. Yeah, it's not a. It is. It is certainly not a. Not a perfect film. I don't. I don't want to imply that it is. But I do like a lot of the acting. I really like the way Mr. Holland is written. I. I do like the way Richard Dreyfus plays him because Richard Dreyfus, he is. A, I think a very underrated actor. People yeah. think of him in, in as Matt Hooper in Jaws. They don't think of the Goodbye Girl. They don't think of American Graffiti. American Graffiti. Yeah, that's a um, great performance. He was. He's. He's done a lot of good like character roles in the movie W. He plays uh, Dick Cheney. I didn't even know. And that. in spite of the fact that I'm positive uh Richard Dreyfus probably hates Dick Cheney and he pl- and the character is by the way portrayed as sort of this uh James Bond type villain <laughs> uh Richard Dreyfus does play him as surprisingly practical. The way he, he like he arrives at these decisions which are kind of horrible not from an evil place but a practical place like this is the way it's going to be done. And as terrible as that is, I'm facing facts. You know, stuff like that. And I like the way that he plays that role. There's a uh, Sidney Lumet film called Night Falls on Manhattan in which he plays a very, very good role, and he plays him very well. So he's a very good actor who is uh, underused and, and undervalued, I think. I think sometimes actors that have been in a lot of really big movies, um, I think sometimes if we're exposed to them at a younger age, once we get older... Um, we're so used to that element of it. To, we think of them as a certain way so much, kind of before we learn to appreciate performances, that we we miss something in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like sometimes he he may be one because he's in Jaws, because he's in Close Encounters. Like yeah. we, we sort of have this idea of him and don't really think about it in a, in a larger sense. Because I I wouldn't say. For instance, Alan Arkin, I wouldn't think that Alan Arkin's a far better actor than Richard Dreyfuss, but when I think of like every performance of his that I can think of, I think of loving it. And I yeah. think it may be because I was exposed to him later on in my life when I was able to appreciate every one of his performances. Because yeah. every movie that I saw of his was when I was at an age where I could, I could really appreciate his acting. Mm-hmm. So we're sort of taking Richard Dreyfuss for granted because we've always seen him. We've grown up with him. There you go. Um... <laughs> And I do think that Mr. Holland's opus might be one of it, it, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, of his performances. Because not only is he required to play somebody over the course of you know of like forty or like thirty or forty years, um, and does the aging process very well, but you also believe that this is somebody who has done the same thing year in year out. He, you know, he, for those that don't know, he plays a teacher. He's an aspiring musician uh, and composer. But he takes a uh, teaching gig to, you know, make ends meet in the meantime and then winds up doing that for 30 or 40 years. And uh, and in doing so, you know, he, he first off doesn't really care much about it. But as he gets more into it and gets more involved with his students, he finds that he does enjoy teaching them to really love and appreciate music. And uh, and then he starts to, I think, really value the the position, even if there's part of him that thinks like he'll always stop doing it at some point and do something else. And he clearly, at least when he starts, he clearly thinks of it as less than Mm -hmm. because he specifically says to a teacher like, Oh, I I took this as a, you know, as a backup. Yeah. 
Uh, I think he says that to the principal. I think. I think so. Yeah. So it, it's it's clear that he he thinks of this as almost something to get through. He doesn't see there being any value to being a teacher, which is kind of to bring it back to the theme. Is is to him he finds worth and value in being a composer. That's a, that is what he thinks of himself as, and suddenly. Not really suddenly, I guess it is gradually, um, for different reasons, he has to be the teacher. Mm-hmm. And, um, again, the the small way in which, which it might diverge from the Christian point of view is um, uh, the, the movie's portraying finding a shift of your identity from one thing to another thing. Right. And if you're going to take it from a purely Christian standpoint, the 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 shift has to be from finding your value in anything worldly, whether it be your, your job or your husband or wife or um, something you or uh, ultimate frisbee, you know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think I think someone can find their worth in that. No problem. Yeah, totally. Uh, there's a movie about that. It's called For the Title. No, anyway. Um, the 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 if you're looking at it from the purely Christian perspective, it should be moving your identity from that worldly thing to uh, to Christ. Mm-hmm. And clearly, that's not what the movie's going to be about, and right. that, and that's fine. Because um, I think there's an equally good met. Well, Maybe not equally, but there's also a good message in uh, being able to to change what it is that you thought was uh, your calling. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I mean, honestly, I'll okay. <sighs> let's let's look at Mr. Holland's opus, and let's replace the word like music with God. Not in every sense, but here's the thing: he loves music, and he feels that. He is supposed to do this one thing in service of the concept of music. Only he winds up doing this other thing and teaching other people to love music. And one finds that he actually is, he does a much greater thing for music, you know, with a capital M, Mm -hmm. than he ever could have done in this other way. And the thing that he thought he was going to do. And so... Now imagine that this is God, like God, he wants to do this thing because he thinks that it's what he's supposed to do for God. Hmm. And then there's a change in his life that he's, he's, you know, reticent to get to embrace. But much to his own surprise, he does way much, uh, way, you know, way more for the kingdom of God in this thing than in the thing he originally planned on. And so... You know, so I am trying. So, in in discussing the theme, I do want to try and, you know, think in in larger terms because uh, I think that Christians, especially, I mean, we you know, last uh, in the last episode and in the one before that, you know, we talked about the idea of of a calling and not letting the calling itself overwhelm the person who gave you the calling, which is God. But also, often we feel like we like God is calling us in a specific direction. And then we act as though when he, when or if he calls us in a different direction, we somehow feel like he's sort of jerking us around. You know, he's he get he gives us something that, and then we start to want it, and the minute we want it, he you know he laughs and takes us in another direction. To you know, reference that quote from earlier, and uh, and so what I'm I guess what I what I want to try to convey in this episode is that God's not jerking you around. It's entirely likely that he had to take you in one direction precisely because you needed to experience that in order for you to 
go in this other direction in the way it was supposed to happen. Um, like I remember to, to go back to the story I told when I said, you know, I think I'm supposed to be a film critic. There were a handful of people who said like, well, yeah, we, you know, we've been saying that for a long time. And I said, that's true. But here's the thing. If I had gone to school to be a critic and if, if in Chicago I said, I want to be a critic, I feel like I'm supposed to be a critic. I wouldn't have, I would never have left Chicago, which means if I had started a podcast, it wouldn't have been Battleship Pretension because I started that with David and it was a very specific kind of show. And if I had not done that, it would have been something very different and I might not have started this show. Mm-hmm. And I certainly wouldn't, and I wouldn't have met you, I wouldn't have met any number of the people that I've met out here and I wouldn't have gotten a lot of the opportunities that I've gotten out here. And what's more is I do believe that while this show is very is pretty small in its scope and there's not a huge listenership... As I mentioned in the minisode, I do think that it's doing something important, and I do believe that it is making, admittedly, probably a small difference, but a difference in the lives of film lovers, and specifically Christian film lovers. And that's, and I apologize if it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back for that, but I do think that it is making some sort of difference, and it's a difference that wouldn't have been made if I hadn't come here to pursue screenwriting, mm-hmm. you know? But in God bringing me out here for one thing and then changing the thing, I could look at that as, well, why doesn't God just make up his mind? You know, and I actually wrote down several instances uh, in which people in the Bible could have looked at at their circumstance and say, like, okay, God's just jerking me around now. Right. And not and actually not all of these have to do with, like, somebody's vocation. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them is uh, Joseph from uh, Genesis. If you look at Technicolor Dreamcoat. That's the one. Yeah. I don't like that now that's how we have to specify. <laughs> but I guess there's Joseph, son of, you know, uh, father of uh, Jesus. Yeah, that's um, true. I guess I guess you'd say father. That's neither here nor there. Anyway, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, if you look in uh, Genesis uh, chapters 37 through 50, you will see that Joseph, you know, he's, he's favored by his father's, you know, uh, sold into, sl- kidnapped and sold into slavery by his brothers as a slave. He's... You know, he's in uh, the the house of uh, Potiphar and then uh, gets kind of screwed over, not literally, that's the point, by uh, <laughs> Potiphar's wife and then gets put in prison. And when he's in prison, he winds up, uh, it turns out he's pretty good at dream interpretation and interprets Pharaoh's dreams only so that he can then uh, be a blessing on the same brothers who sold him into slavery. <laughs> and so there's, uh, there's some nice symmetry to that story. But what's mm-hmm. more is at every point, Joseph could be like, all right, so so it was slavery, now prison. <laughs> That's great. That's great. And then like and then oh, prison, now I'm a now I'm an advisor to the king to to, you know, Pharaoh. This is amazing. Oh, you're bringing these people back into my life. That's great. <laughs> well, at least I'll get a chance for revenge. Forgiveness, you say. Okay. You know, like at any moment, he could have been like really upset with God for just the constant changing of circumstances, even if it's from bad to good. You know, he could look at it that way. Another very uh, notable example is Abraham in Genesis 22. I was going to say, that's that's the first one that jumps to mind for me. It's (laughs) like, what what is it? It's a pretty dramatic one. Something like a hundred years of waiting. Like, yeah, yeah, don't worry. The sun's coming. The sun's coming. And then you have the sun for, I don't know, Isaac was 15, 16, maybe something like that. I think is what I've... Uh, they say, uh, and so you have him for a few years. It's like, all right, I get rid of that. Let's kill that. Yeah. And God says, you know, 
you need to kill Isaac. And I, I looked it up earlier, and uh, and it says that he traveled for three days to where he was supposed to do it. So that's three. That's uh, you know a certain degree of commitment. But I guess after a hundred years, you're used to that kind of thing. Um, so <laughs> a lot yeah. of soul searching that goes on for right. three days walking uh, up to the top of a mountain to kill the thing that is the very promise you've been expecting for God for a hundred years. And so not only do you feel like God, you know, uh, has been jerking you around for a hundred years, it's like, oh, you've given me a son. Yes, I have. I'm now going to take him back. And I don't mean to say that facetiously. That is is sort of, you know, a lot of people are bothered by this story, by the idea of God saying, I'm, I want to kill your son. Um, but I think there, it is more nuanced than that if you look up like historical context and stuff like that. And there's a whole lot of, of very complicated implications about, about that whole story, which I didn't even know of until I, I read, um, again, our pastor mentioned Soren Kierkegaard this morning, but he wrote uh, um, Fear and Trembling. Is that the right one? I think that's the right one, which is about uh, what it's kind of a philosophical exploration of what that whole situation meant on, on a lot of different levels. And it's it's complicated to the point where I, I in reading some of it, I was like, I don't even understand the uh, the uh, philosophical implications of of this act and of uh, Abraham's response and what uh what God was doing. So uh, if it seems complicated to you, it's more complicated. Don't worry. Yeah. But that's, and that's the thing is, you know, uh, we don't want to, I was reluctant to bring up that story simply because so many people hear it and it sounds monstrous Mm -hmm. to them. But of course it should be noted that after the three days, right as Abraham is going to do what God commanded, God stops him. And he specifically says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now, I look at that, and uh, I, I guess it was maybe a year ago that I, I looked at that and thought, oh, that's interesting. God was going to require from Abraham his son, his only son, and then said, no, you don't need to sacrifice your son. Cut to the New Testament, and God does not uh, he, God does not spare his own son, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel like so Abra- Abraham could look at these the various circumstances in own, his own life and yell, "Make up your mind, but he believes in a much larger truth, and sure enough, and you know now we're reading about it you know several uh, thousand years later in the context of Christianity. And now we realize that God made the sacrifice that he did not require Abraham to make, which is pretty exciting. Um, and then the last one uh, that I have here is uh, Peter and Andrew in uh, Matthew four eighteen, um, And it says, uh, and Jesus was walking beside the sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers. Uh, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother, Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. And so I'm sure that, uh, you know, chances are they were uh, religious people. Uh, and they probably felt like, well, I'm going to be, a, I'm a fisherman. That's what my calling is. That's, it's a, you know, good blue collar calling and I'm going to do it. Uh, and then uh, it's like, no, I, you need to come follow me. Incidentally, there's no guarantee of uh, making money. And so, and they could have said like, uh, but clearly this is what I'm supposed to be doing. 
but they didn't. They said, okay, this is, we're going to do this now. And, uh, and I don't want to give the impression that, uh, that one should take such things lightly and just be like, and just be impulsive constantly. Like it requires a lot of prayer and, and, you know, I'd say seek advice from people that you trust and that sort of thing. But the, I guess the point is, is this, like we can look at shifts in circumstances, whether they be job or, you know, relationship status or whatever, um, we could look at those and get upset with God because it's everything seems so unstable. Or we can try to recognize why that might have happened, what it is that we're trying to do. Because, of course, in Mr. Holland's opus, he wanted to be this great composer, but instead he wound up being a teacher. And as we see at the end of the film, and of course the end of the film is very cheesy, and but that's the thing is, it's a nice... Rep- it's a representative of what he actually was able to do. He touched people's lives and caused them to not merely love music, but also as a teacher who cared about them, he was able to instill confidence in peop- in his students as people and also made them feel as if somebody cared for them. And so even though he uh, he never made it as a composer, he did something much more important, and who knows what those people would go on to do. And so uh, that's, and then to bring it to the, you know, King's speech, both Lionel and Bertie both had a clear idea of what they wanted their lives to be and what they thought their lives were going to be. And they wound up being very different, but great things came about as a result. Yeah, that's the, the uplifting message is that something great can come of something that seems a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So, or an impediment even. Indeed, absolutely. So, uh, all right. So uh, we've been going for a while. So I'll go ahead and uh, and end it there. Um, Josh, welcome aboard. Thank you. Very exciting. Uh, and a reminder, by the way, uh, that uh, if you would like to uh, enter the drawing for uh, Josh's film for the title, just email me Tyler at more than one lesson dot com, and I will announce uh, on the next episode uh, who won, and it'll just be one copy. Um, if you would like to give me just any feedback, you can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You can go to morethanonelesson.com for various blogs and such. There's not very many of them very often, but, uh, you know, go on and see what we've got. Yeah, who knows? Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, at morelessons. Uh, I would suggest, uh, and you know what? Um, now that the show is uh, sort of taken, I don't know, started heading in a new direction, um, Perhaps uh, tell your friends, you know, like uh, it's as I mentioned, like the, the listenership is pretty, pretty small. And I blame that totally on me and the fact that I put out one episode a month and not even on the same day every month. Like it's as it turns out, consistency is what people want. And that's how you build an audience, which I haven't been. But uh, but we're going to try and do this uh, a bit more regularly and uh, and we'll see if that actually happens or not. But nonetheless, you can always go on Facebook or Twitter and recommend an episode that you specifically like, and I would really appreciate that if you could do that because I would like to uh, to start building more of an audience. And you can uh, also, you mentioned you're uh, on Twitter at, at More Lessons, and you can find me if you would like at, at the Josh Long. That's T-H-E, Josh Not Long. T-H-E, J-O-S-H-L-O-N-G. There you the go. Josh Long. Indeed. So expect a huge spike of Twitter followers. I'd, it's going to go up by half. Yeah. That could totally happen. It's, <laughs> I don't it's have a whole lot of possible. followers. 
Well, get with the program. You got to start saying more incendiary things. All right. I'm just next thing this week, all political statements. Oh, good. George Bush is the devil. Obama eats babies. Huh. It's going to be I all things like that. I always thought it was flip flopped. It's. <laughs> and I'm deeply offended that you're saying it's the opposite of what I yeah, thought. Yeah. See, it's working already. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, so that's the episode. Uh, Josh, once again, thanks for coming on board. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening, and I'll get you next time. Bye.